Hi, Matt Doig here. Just a heads up that as well as the usual ghostly goings on in Weird in the Wade, this episode also discusses murder and some gruesome executions. Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off-kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny, all that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade or the pot and poisoner, curious social history or the great swan mystery of 1935 will follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. It's 1960, a warm Saturday evening, springtime. We're on Biggleswade Common, up near the hospital, the south side of Potton Road, known as the Pastures. Children have been playing here for most of the afternoon, fishing with colourful nets in the stream, building dens amongst the trees, lying in the grass, dreaming. As dusk draws around us, most of the children have left for home, left before the streetlights flicker on. But not Keith, Martin, nor Carol. They've lied to their parents about where they are. Keith and Carol's mum thinks they're both with Martin's family. Martin's mum thinks he's at Keith and Carol's. They've dreamt up this ruse so they can go out on a dare. They're waiting for the dark to deepen, for night to set in, waiting for the common to be swathed in shadow. No torches, says Keith. He's the eldest at 12. Martin is his best friend and six months younger. Carol is 10, but braver than both boys. No, no torches. torches, they all agree. Now that it's dark, the half-moon is bright enough for them to see their way across the lumpy grass. The cows are grazing at the other end of the pastures, away from where the children are heading. But the cattle's occasional lowing and movements are making the children nervous. It's just the cows, Carol says. Just the cows. The boys agree. As if by some unspoken agreement, they all stop 
at the same time. They're not far now. We go together, Martin says. Agreed. Agreed. We leave together, Keith says. But you mustn't run, Carol interjects, because if one of you gets spooked and runs for it, we don't all have to follow, right? The boys seem less sure as they agree. Right. Right. Again, without speaking another word, they all set off at the same time, taking slow and steady steps. Carol's heart is thumping, but she is not going to let her brother nor Martin know that she is scared. She can see it now, ahead of them. The brook is to their right. It's no longer the shallow-sided stream the younger kids had been fishing in earlier. Here, the brook is at the bottom of a steep-sided ditch, the water unseeable, unless you lean right over and peer in. It runs silently, under the road, through a tunnel. When you are on the road above, you have no idea that you're travelling over the ditch. It is a bridge, but it doesn't feel like it at all. Only from down here in the pastures can you see that the road forms a bridge. There are bushes and dark grasses obscuring the view under the road. There's been no traffic for the last five minutes. The birdsong dwindled with the light. All Carol can hear is her heart beating and the breathing of the boys. They are definitely scared. Martin had reminded them of the story that afternoon. Whilst the sun was still shining, the dare seemed far away in the future. It's called Murder Bridge because back in the war, a young nurse was murdered there. A body found stuffed under the bridge in that ditch, found by children like us out playing. But the children were so scared, they didn't tell anyone about her body. And she lay there for another week until an old fella found her whilst walking his dog. The dog barked and barked until he went and looked. They say the old fella's black hair turned white overnight with a shock. Her ghost hates children because the children left her there. She blames them. She appears like a grey, shrouded mist at first. Then her phantom takes shape and she wears a grey nurse's cape and she flies at any children who approach, screaming and cursing at them. That's why you must never cross the murder bridge at night and you should certainly never approach the bridge from the common. Who's actually seen her then? Carol had asked, wanting some firm evidence. Malcolm Wright did last year, and Donald Carver, he saw her, a group of other kids in the summer of 57 he was with, and my dad now works with him, and he told him all about it. Carol doesn't trust Malcolm, but she does trust Donald. He's practically a grown-up now. Now we are just a few yards from the bridge. Children stop again and peer at the ditch, at the long river grasses, which are swaying ever so slightly in the chill breeze. The children listen. Nothing. Just the night. Carol steps forward, determined to get as close as she can to prove the boys wrong. But her approach is cut short, just a few feet away from the bridge, from the black mouth gaping below the road, she stops because of the sound. At first, she thinks it's the bark of a dog. Like the dog in the story Martin told, the dog that found the body. She freezes, holds her breath. Then the noise sounds again, along with some rustling. 
The noise is coming from near the ditch. It's a fox, surely, she breathes out. Then, out of the ditch, just in front of the tunnel's dark moor, looms a huge grey shape. She hears the boys behind her scream. She gasps, frozen to the spot. The grey shape is wide, like a person wearing a cape, with thin legs almost dangling below. The cape wafts. The figure takes off into the air in front of her, screeching and growling. There is a rushing sound, a flapping, a flapping of wings. The relief. She has never felt such relief as she swivels to watch the heron fly over her head and over the boys who are pelting away from her, screaming and crying like the silly cowards they are, Carol thinks. It's a heron, you idiots, she calls after the boy. A bird. It's just a bird. The phantom of the murder bridge is just a silly old bird. The boys have stopped some way away from her. They are doubled over, catching their breath, <laughs> laughing shakily. Carol turns to look over her shoulder. She's not sure why. The dark opening of the bridge is blacker than the night around her. She shakes her head. She's about to look away, but out of the corner of her eye, she sees a mist rising, curling, like breath escaping the tunnel's black mouth. She blinks and it's gone. She hurries to the boys, who have now switched their torches on and are searching the skies and the grass in front of them for the bird that gave them such a fright. Let's go home. Carol says determinedly. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. I'm Nat Doig and today's episode is about ghost stories and hauntings that are associated with crime. After last month's Highwaymen episode, it struck me that many ghost stories have connections to either criminals or victims of crime. I want to explore that idea a little further in this episode and the following episode. So this is a two-part exploration of criminal phantoms. And as it turns out, Bickleswade's most notorious haunting is associated with a crime. But before we return to that, just a heads up about what else is in store for you in this episode. I have a very special guest. Wayne from Erie Edinburgh podcast and YouTube channel joins me for a discussion about crime and hauntings. I asked Wayne not just because I love Erie Edinburgh, links to his show are in today's show description, show notes, blog and on social media, but because a lot of the Scottish ghost stories he has told do have an element of crime in them. I thought he was the perfect person to ask about this particular genre of ghost story. We'll also return to Black Tom and examine whether the outlaw Thomas Dunn could be Black Tom's companion phantom. He was described as one of the wickedest men who ever lived. This is just part one of two episodes, as I said earlier, looking at hauntings and crime. And in the next episode, we'll look at body snatchers in Biggleswade, ghostly graveyards, and a victim of crime who haunts Green Park in London. 
stick around to the end of this episode to find out more. So they are going to be two episodes jam-packed with ghostly crime from Biggleswade, Bedford, Bedfordshire to London and Scotland. We're going on a real journey across the country, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. And if you do enjoy Weird in the Wade, there are some ways that you can support the show. Please do tell your friends and family, your social networks about Weird in the Wade if you can. Um, you can also rate and review the podcast on some podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify, for example. When you leave a rating or review, it means more podcast listeners will find the show. And I really want to say a huge thank you to all of you who listen, because so many of you do. Weird in the Wade is consistently in the Apple podcast charts for history podcasts in the UK. It honestly blows my mind that my little podcast reaches so many of you and that you enjoy it. I can't explain how happy that makes me. It's almost a year since I started the podcast and there will be some exciting news about podcast developments before the first year anniversary in May. Think merchandise and a Patreon. There is one other way you can support the podcast if you can afford to please buy the show a coffee or two. I have a Ko-fi page, which is ko-fi.com forward slash weird in the wade, where you can do just that. Buy us a coffee. All the money I raise goes back into the show, paying for podcast and website hosting, music licensing, equipment, travel costs, and buying my guests a coffee and a slice of cake. But back to today's stories. The Murder Bridge. Now, surely the Haunted Pound Stretcher is Biggleswade's most famous ghost story, I hear you ask. Well, thanks to Damien O'Dell's books and Weird in the Wade, it might just be. But if you're a local to Biggleswade, the ghost story you probably think of first when asked, does Biggleswade have any ghosts, is that of the spirit that haunts Murder Bridge. In fact, it's so well known that most people roll their eyes when anyone mentions it. Murder Bridge is a local cliché. Just about every kid who grew up here knows the story and knows not to go past or over the bridge. It's one of those geographical boundary ghost stories that maybe served the purpose of stopping kids from wandering too far from home. The general gist of the story is this. The bridge on the Potton Road, right at the far northeastern corner of the pastures side of Biggleswade Common, is called Murder Bridge because a poor young nurse was murdered there in the Second World War and her ghost now haunts the spot. But even the bare bones of this story are disputed. Some say the actual murder bridge is a bridge called Millbrook Bridge, just along the Potton Road, nearer to the ancient hamlet of Sutton. This Millbrook Bridge is just before or after a sharp bend. The bend is also often called Murder Bend. Many nowadays assume that it's called Murder Bend because it's murder to drive around it. Though, that seems a bit of a stretch as it's not that bad of a bend, nor do there seem to have been a disproportionate number of accidents there. But I've always heard that Murder Bridge is the bridge that is nearer to Biggleswade 
hospital, and that's important. Biggleswade History Society did do some digging in the 1990s, but they couldn't answer the question definitively either. Sadly, I can find no witnesses who say they've ever seen the ghost, yet every kid knows that there is a ghost at Murder Bridge. If you're local and you have seen the ghost, or someone you know has, please do get in touch. Contact details are in the show description wherever you're listening now. The first reference to a bridge being called Murder Bridge that I can find is in a Biggleswade Chronicle article from 1950. It's about a car driving off the road there and onto the pasture or meadow next to it. The article shows that clearly by 1950, whichever bridge it is, it was well known as Murder Bridge locally. I looked for a murder associated with the bridge and also came up empty. I looked for any murder victim being reported found at that site or on the common nearby or on Potton Road, but I found nothing. In fact, murders in Biggleswade were few and far between and none matched the description attached to our story. I found a poor victim of a famous highwayman gang who was murdered on a road a mile from Biggleswade, killed for a few pennies and his watch. This was in the 18th century, and it doesn't specify which road, so it's unlikely to be our murder bridge. I also found an accidental death in a ditch on the common, but it was of a man in his 40s who was gathering watercress. He slipped and hit his head. No exact location is given for his death either, and the common is large, stretching around the northern half of Biggleswade. All other murders that I could find reported took place in homes, pubs, or they just didn't fit the description. And there are thankfully, as I already mentioned, surprisingly few Biggleswade murders. But there is one contender for creating or inspiring this story, though it is a tenuous link, as it didn't happen in Biggleswade. A wartime murder. In 1943, Muriel Gertrude Emery, just 21 years old, was working as a nurse at the Three Counties Hospital, which, although a mental hospital in the old Victorian asylum style, was being used as an emergency hospital during the Second World War. The Three Counties Hospital was situated eight miles due south of Biggleswade, between Alsey and Stockfold. Muriel was still a probationer and had trained, it appears, at the London Royal Free Hospital, far from her home, county of Norfolk. She was brought up by a single mother, Mildred Emery, who must have been immensely proud of her daughter's work during the war. On the evening of the 18th of August, 1943, Muriel was on a break from work and she met with her boyfriend in the grounds of the hospital. After saying goodbye to him and turning to head back to work, she was set upon and brutally murdered her body left in a nearby spinney. In spite of the involvement of Scotland Yard in the investigation, Muriel's murderer was not caught until six months after the crime. 
Reginald Walter Rowley was living in Stockfold, but is reported to have been from Biggleswade. He was 24 years old and a farm labourer. He was caught and arrested after attacking a shopkeeper in her 60s. He confessed to Muriel's murder, but was spared the death penalty at his trial due to having epilepsy. It was argued that the epilepsy diminished his responsibility. He was sentenced to hard labour instead. I link this story to the murder bridge purely because it is an actual murder of a nurse that did take place during the Second World War, though I can find no link between Muriel Emery and the hospital at Biggleswade. Now, the initial court hearings and inquest were held in Biggleswade, so local people would have been very much aware of it. Biggleswade Hospital is very close to the bridge, known as Murder Bridge. So why would this tragic murder, which was headline news across the country, inspire the Murder Bridge tale, you might well ask? Maybe the ghost story is a fragment of social fear. A fear about being out alone, near to the hospital. Many nurses will have been travelling to and from Biggleswade Hospital along the Potton Road or even over the Common, in the dark, on foot or bicycle during the Second World War. There was at least six months with no culprit identified and other attacks on nurses were happening across the country. And the country was concerned about this. Unprecedented numbers of women were travelling by themselves late at night and early in the morning to attend work because of the war effort. Not just nurses, obviously, but often the hospitals and old houses that had been commandeered as hospitals were far from the centre of town, just like the three counties and Biggleswade hospitals were back then. Many of the women, like Muriel, were in places unfamiliar to them because of the war. They were on foot or on bicycle and so did not have the protection of a car. For any man intent on attacking women, these lonely hospital grounds and environs provided the opportunity. The war itself and the increase in people coming and going because of the war, as well as the strain on resources, gave a greater ability for the culprits to escape the law. And even in 1958, there was another murder at the Three Counties Hospital of a young nurse. And this was partly blamed on the lack of street lighting and safety for those travelling to and from the site. So I do wonder if the Murder Bridge ghost story is a mix of half-remembered fears, fear associated with lonely places near to hospitals, the fear that parents want to instil in their children to keep them from straying too far from home. The fear of accidents, like the one that befell the chap gathering watercress. The fear that every young woman experiences growing up learning about crimes against women and girls. The fear we have of the unknown, the unexplained and incomprehensible. The fear these boundaries of water, ditches, commons and copses these wild places hold in our imaginations because the details of the ghost story are scant and the details of any Biggleswade-based murder there are untraceable. But the story is a heady mix of social fears and anxieties that we place on the borders of our minds and around where we live. 
The Tale of Murder Bridge is supposedly only 80 years old. My next tale is far older, at 800 years old. In the last episode, I told you the story of Black Tom, the Phantom Highwayman of Bedford. He now haunts a roundabout and his ghost has been seen as recently as the 1990s, staggering about, head lolling to one side with the appearance of a man recently hanged. Legend has it that he was a famous highwayman of the more gallant variety, but the mystery deepened when I investigated because no trace of a highwayman meeting his name, description or circumstances seems to exist. And then there was the fact that on many occasions, Black Tom's shambling phantom has been seen with another, more shadowy companion. It was this companion I wanted to find out more about. I first read the theory that maybe Black Tom was in fact based on two Toms associated with crime in the area on the Odell Village newsletter for May 2010, where an article argued that Thomas Dunn could be a contender for the legend of Black Tom and his companion ghost. Thomas Dunn's story is a dark one and another tale swathed in the mists of time, in rumour, conjecture, mistaken identity and misunderstandings. But picking my way through all of that, here is what I know about Thomas Dunn. He was probably an outlaw in the time of either Henry I during the 12th century or Henry III during the 13th century. I'm going with Henry III as his reign was long and so there is statistically more time to fit Thomas Dunn into his reign. Thomas's story appears to first be written down in detail in the 18th century, so at least 500 years after he lived. However, there appears to have been earlier stories and folklore associated with him, which were brought together in the 18th century retellings. Much of his story is similar to other tales of outlaws and robbers, and some of it reads like a fairy tale. The main version of his story that I have used for this episode is from the book The Lives and Exploits of English Highwaymen, Pirates and Robbers, published in 1883, but is based on the earlier 1724 work of Captain Charles Johnson. As a child, it is said that Thomas Dunn was jealous of others, coveting their possessions and lying as easily as other children smiled. Thomas was from, or at least settled, in Bedfordshire. He certainly terrorised the locality with his robbing and violence. There are many stories which illustrate his brutality, where after holding up victims on the road at knife point and being given their goods, he decides to stab and kill them anyway, just because he can. He burgled houses and was indiscriminate in his violence, attacking both men, women and children. He is also portrayed as a master of disguise. He would dress himself up in 
rags and even give himself the appearance of a person with leprosy or some other impairment. But Dunn wasn't content to just beg for pennies in the guise of a disabled man. No, unwary and charitable people would approach him, fooled by his outward demeanour, only for Dunn to leap up and slash their throats, grabbing their possessions and fleeing. I find this aspect of his story particularly interesting as it plays into a fear and an anxiety that society is still grappling with today and that is a fear about being fooled or conned by those who appear to be in need or who are faking a disability. This aspect of the story is like a 13th century version of the 21st century saints and scroungers genre of TV programmes and articles. My previous work in the UK job centres and then as a disability campaigner means I know that instances of disability fraud are extremely low. It's a rare form of fraud. Yet, it's an issue which is so emotive and distracting, it's often used politically to avoid discussions on more complex and prevalent issues. It's also used by daytime TV schedulers as entertainment. And as a disabled person, I have very uncomfortable feelings about why stories like this are so disproportionately popular. But that's for another podcast on another day. Here in the 13th century and in the 18th and 19th century retellings, I think the story of disguise is included as a warning to travellers to be wary, to be careful who they trust on the road, that things are not always as they seem, but also to demonstrate just how heinous and evil Thomas Dunn was, that he would pretend to be someone deemed as the weakest and lowest in society, the shunned and pitied as a way to get rich and to satisfy his sadistic desires, which opens up another can of worms about how these tales portray disability. Yet alongside these stories of violence, there are stranger tales as well, like these next two stories about Dunn that I am going to tell you. Although Thomas Dunn is no Robin Hood, he does have a rivalry with the Sheriff of Bedford and takes particular delight in outwitting him. In one story, Thomas Dunn has brought a gang of light-minded outlaws around him and they capture, kill and rob a group of the Sheriff of Bedford's men who had been sent to capture them. Yet not content with just evading capture, Thomas Dunn and his gang dress in the clothes of the slain sheriff's men and rampage around Bedfordshire, robbing and looting and demanding money and goods. The word gets out that the sheriff of Bedford's men have gone rogue. In an age before the printing press, let alone photography, it's not hard to see why. If you were dressed in the uniform of the sheriff, others would assume that you were one of his men. It is only when the bodies of the murdered sheriff's men are found and identified that the people of Bedfordshire realise that they've all been fooled as well as swindled and robbed. I wonder if this story has a hint of the what happens if the powers that be are in fact the criminals, whether it's politicians, the gentry or law enforcers. How do we know they're not just a bunch of rogues in disguise? Another allegory that seems pertinent today. 
The next story included about Thomas Dunn is an even stranger one. It stands out as unlike any of the other tales told about him. The Diamond Ring At the time our story is set, Thomas Dunn had shunned his gang, who he had grown bored of, and he was wandering the roads of Bedfordshire alone. He had lately robbed a knight of some 400 marks, yet he could not find a place to spend the money and the night. The rain was lashing down and in the dark tempest he'd lost his way, distracted by dreams of a hot meal, good liquor and a warm bed. Wandering off from the main road, he found himself in a wood, cursing the weather, the poor road conditions and the dripping dark trees everything but his own carelessness he stumbled on bedraggled and angry eventually he emerged from the wood to see a house standing alone in a field its lights blazing against the dark he rushed through the mud of the field and the muck of the farmyard to the house he hammered on the door bellowing let me in let me in eventually the door was opened He was admitted and he waited, dripping on the stone floor as the master of the house was sought. Dunn could hear the laughter and conversation of many people from a room somewhere within the large house. Finally, the gentleman of the house emerged, wiping his beard with the back of his hand. Not a night to be out travelling, he boomed. Come, come warm yourself by the fire for a spell. Dunn did not budge. Instead, he replied sourly, I need shelter for the night. The jovial gentleman thought for a moment, and I would gladly give it if we had room to spare, but it is my daughter's wedding tomorrow, and every habitable room in this house is taken with family and friends, ready for the celebration tomorrow. By all means, come and warm yourself and have some food, though. What of your... Uninhabitable rooms, Dunn spat. I must stay the night and I will not walk further and I will not be denied. The jovial man ran his hand over his whiskery chin, looking Dunn up and down. Well, there is one room that is empty. It's perfectly sound, dry and warm, but no one will set foot in it (laughs) on account of it being haunted. Nonsense. I do not believe in ghosts and goblins. I will stay in that room. Jovial host then provided Thomas Dunn with a rich, hearty supper, a seat by the fire and fine wine reserved for the wedding. Dunn did not utter a single word of thanks and he ignored the family and wedding guests, apart from the bride-to-be, who was a young pretty woman with chestnut hair who seemed to be the only person in the room in more of a sour mood than he was. Thomas Dunn kept his beady eye on her as he slurped his wine and stuffed his face with chicken legs, throwing the bones over his shoulder to crack and hiss in the fire. He then demanded to be shown to bed. He found the room plain and simple, small but sound, and not being a superstitious man, he was soon in bed and snoring until some time later he awoke with a start. He was aware that the door to his room had slowly been opened. 
he assumed it was one of the family playing a prank on him and he reached for his knife, which he always slept with, ready to brandish and use it if the mood took him. But as he looked through the corner of his eye, he saw it was the bride-to-be. She was walking steadily, looking straight ahead, a stray chestnut curl lying against her cheek. He could not tell if she was awake or sleeping. To his surprise, she then pulled back the covers of his bed and lay down next to him, still staring straight ahead, looking up onto the ceiling and saying not a word. He could feel her warmth, hear her breath. She was not an apparition. If she was asleep and he woke her and she screamed, there'd be hell to pay. And he wanted to sleep and be gone from this place as soon as he could in the morning. So he just lay there still. But no sooner had she lain down next to him, the bride-to-be sat back up and removed from her finger a large diamond ring, which she laid gently on the pillow next to Dunn. Then, as stealthily as she had entered the room, she left it, closing the door softly behind her, leaving behind a faint scent of violets and honeysuckle. Thomas Dunn could not believe his luck. This young lass had just left him the hugest diamond ring he had ever seen. He quickly pocketed it, along with his knife, and decided to leave as soon as the cock crowed in the morning. He dozed back off to sleep, only to dream of the young bride-to-be, who now sat next to him on the bed. She said that she did not care for her intended, and that if Thomas Dunn would take her away from the house that morning, she would give him more gold and jewels than he could imagine. Dunn woke with a start. It had been a dream, surely, yet he could feel a warmth next to him on the bed, and that scent of violets and honeysuckle was heady in the room. Had it been a dream? It was early still. The cock had still not crowed, but he felt that he was in a trap of some kind. And with the ring safely stowed away, he snuck out of the house without a thank you or further thought about the young woman and her offer. As I mentioned earlier, it's a very strange story to be stuck amongst the tales of murder, plundering and cunning disguises. It's like a fairy tale pops out of nowhere. And then after this interlude, we're back to more tales of Dunn committing terrible violence. I think the Victorians may have sanitised this story, as they often did. They were content to portray wickedness of the purely violent kind, but maybe not so much if it was sexual. Yet clearly we have a young woman in this story getting into bed with this awful man, but nothing happens between them other than her offering up a valuable piece of jewellery. Is it symbolic? Is she offering him something else as well? But Dunn is a thoroughly disreputable man who will not help this young woman even with the offer of a reward and I wonder if there's a hint at this being a bargain he knew would not end well for him. He is in a room with reported supernatural properties. Is this woman really the bride-to-be or some fairy creature in disguise? Such a promise of more wealth comes at a price Dunn is not prepared to take for risk of it being a trick. 
We don't find out what happened to the bride-to-be as the story then moves on to Dunn's last violent deeds and his eventual capture and punishment. His capture story has similarities to that of Black Tom's in that the River Ooze is involved. But before we get to that and the attempt to apprehend Thomas Dunn is also tied up with the name of one Bedfordshire town, that of Dunstable. Dunstable. The folklore of the town is that its name came about after the King of England set up a garrison of men at its site to capture Thomas Dunn and his gang. The Dunn in Dunstable is for Thomas Dunn. Other versions of this story state that the King attempted to lure Thomas Dunn out of hiding by stapling a ring to a post where Dunstable now stands and Dunn fell for the bait and was captured. However, it seems more likely that Dunstable is either named after an Anglo-Saxon, Duna, and means the boundary of Duna's land, or it's from the Old English word Dun, which means hill, and staple for marketplace, so the market on the hill. But the story of the king using Dunstable as a place of operation in his attempt to capture Thomas Dunn remains a popular folktale to this day. Capture the story of Dunn's eventual capture is a dramatic one. First, he is tracked down to a small village in Bedfordshire where he has been lying low. Some say it was his mother's house. On being discovered, he takes flight on a horse, obviously one that he's stolen, pursued by at least 50 men. This number soon increases to 150 men as word gets out about the pursuit. They gallop across the countryside of Bedfordshire and on at least one occasion, Thomas is dramatically dismounted from his horse, but he manages to scramble back up onto the horse's back and rides on as the crowd of pursuers grows behind him. After many miles, his horse collapses with exhaustion and Dunn continues his getaway on foot. The crowds chasing him have now swelled to over 300 people, women and men, armed with clubs, pitchforks, spades, rakes and other rustic weapons, as they're described. Thomas Dunn, exhausted, rests for a short while but realises that the crowd are almost upon him. He strips off, places his sword between his teeth and he leaps into the nearby river ooze to swim to safety. Except the banks of the river are surrounded on both sides. Dunn makes it to an island in the middle of the water where he hopes he can lie low. But boatmen are pursuing him. So back into the water he jumps, sword between his teeth again, and he swims some more. But the boatmen catch up with him, beating him on the head with their oars until he is overcome and dragged into a boat and back onto dry land. Dunn is taken to Bedford Jail, where the authorities are good enough to treat his wounds and let them heal for a fortnight before taking him to execution with no trial. On the day of his execution, there is a huge crowd in Bedford to witness it. Dunn is led to the scaffold, though it was probably a large tree, and there are two hangmen because he is such a dangerous prisoner. 
Dunn calls to the men. I warn you, do not approach me or you will pay. The hangmen approach him and nine times Thomas Dunn throws them to the ground. But on the tenth attempt, they subdue him long enough to fix the rope around his neck and he is hanged until he is dead. Though that is not the end of his punishment. His wickedness was so well known, so many around Bedfordshire had been terrorised by him and members of his gang were still on the run. So as a warning and a testament to his crimes, his body was chopped up into pieces. His head was severed from his body and then his head was burnt to ashes. And every town and village in Bedfordshire was sent a piece of his body to be displayed for all to see. I wonder which part Bigglesweed was sent. His knee, maybe? It's a horribly gruesome punishment for a man who committed horribly gruesome crimes. But does knowing this story get us any closer to knowing if he is the shadowy phantom who accompanies Black Tom's ghost in Bedford? We'll never know, but the author of the Odell newsletter speculates that Thomas Dunn may well have been known as Black Tom because in the parlance of the past, his deeds were so evil they'd be known as Black Deeds. I've not found any evidence that Dunn was known by such a nickname, though Dunn does mean grey or dark brown. I could see by having a shade of colour as a name, this might lead to the play on words. Some of Thomas Dunn's story does have similarities to Black Tom's own. They're both held at Bedford Jail. They both are a particular enemy of the Sheriff of Bedford. They are both notorious outlaws with something of the mysterious and flamboyant about them. They both attempt an escape in the river. But Black Tom is a figure that at least some of the townsfolk admired, and he is portrayed as a criminal but one of a more gallant nature, only resorting to violence in defence or if he did not get what he wanted. Many did not want to see Black Tom hanged, his ghost is restless because he felt he had been treated unfairly when the people's appeal for leniency was destroyed and ignored by a jailer. Thomas Dunn was feared and hated by the population. He was a man sadistic and cruel in his criminality. It seems all rejoiced at his death. If Thomas Dunn's spirit is restless, it is due to his evil nature and possibly the nature of his execution. Later in this episode, when I'm talking with Wayne from Erie, Edinburgh, we'll look at another case of an execution that included a mutilation and whether such mutilations have an impact on the associated ghost story. It could be the case that Thomas Dunn and the story of another more recent highwayman have twisted together to form what is now remembered of the Black Tom story. Maybe elusive sightings of an additional shadowy ghost is an indication of this. Are there two restless spirits or two stories being half remembered and attributed to that sight? Or is it a bit of both? Thomas Dunn, the pirate. But before we leave Thomas Dunn, there is another aspect to this story that leads us nicely 
into my discussion with Wayne from Erie, Edinburgh. When I was researching Black Tom, I came across another Thomas Dunn. This Thomas Dunn, I think, has become entangled with our Bedfordshire outlaw and confusion and mistaken identity has led to all kinds of trouble. You see, there was a man who the English Chronicles called Thomas Dunn, alive in the early 14th century, who was a pirate. In 1315, this Thomas Dunn seized an English ship sailing into Holyhead on Anglesey and looted it. Thomas Dunn did this on behalf of Robert the Bruce, King of Scotland, because this Thomas Dunn was Scottish. His actual name was Tavish Dove. Tavish being the Scottish variant of Tom Thomas and Dove being Gaelic for black. So he was a Thomas Black, a Black Tom, and he was often referred to as Black Tavish. It is most likely that an English mistranslation of the Gaelic Dove, which is spelt D-U-B-N, saddled him with the name Dunn. But as his real name was Tavish, and to reduce confusion, that's what I'm going to call him now. Black Tavish, the Scottish pirate. Irish, Scots and English sources all mention him and how he was the scourge on the Irish Sea. After the Battle of Bannockburn, Robert the Bruce sent his younger brother over to Ireland to fight the English there. Black Tavish assisted in this endeavour by ferrying the Scottish army across the Irish Sea, as well as looting and plundering English supply ships. Tavish seems to share some characteristics with the Thomas Dunn of Bedfordshire in that he was feared and disliked, even by his fellow Scots. One described him as a scummer of the sea or scum of the sea. Black Tavish's fleet of Scottish privateers and pirates proved so good at capturing English vessels and looting them, Edward II, King of England, ordered a special ship to be built just to assist in the capture of Black Tavish. And eventually he was defeated by the English Navy off the coast of Northern Ireland. It is said that Black Tavish died on his boat and he is buried in one of the Skerries, a string of islands off the East Strand in Port Rush, Northern Ireland. A blog entry by Tim Hodgkinson identifies the islet furthest east is called Island Dove. It is probable that it is named after Tavish Dove, a pirate who once frequented Skerries. And Port Rush has taken Black Tavish the pirate to their hearts, holding a pirate festival in his honour. There are even tales that he was buried along with treasure, looted from the English fleet on that Isle of Dove. So, we find ourselves in a bit of a historical pickle. There is a Thomas Dunn of Bedfordshire, villain and highway robber, who may or may not have given his name to Dunstable and may have lived in the 12th century or possibly the 13th century. We then have Tavish Dove, which when anglicised is Thomas Black, but was mistranslated as Thomas Dunn, but who was also known as Black Tavish or Black Tom, who was a Scottish pirate in the early 14th century. 
they're not the same man, clearly, but it is conceivable why they got mixed up and confused in the 18th century when the first books about pirates and highwaymen were proving popular. But certainly, by the time of the source material I was using for Thomas Dunn was printed in 1883, Thomas Dunn of Bedfordshire was not being confused with the pirate. However, the modern internet seems to have re-entangled these two characters again somewhat. I think it is safe to say, though, that the Black Tom or Toms who haunt that Bedford roundabout are not Black Tavish, the Scottish pirate, who I doubt ever set foot in Bedford. That's not to say that there aren't real links and themes within these stories of ghostly criminals or ancient outlaws between Bedfordshire and Scotland. Across the whole of the United Kingdom and Ireland, Europe and the world, there seems to be a link between crimes and ghost stories. So many hauntings seem to have a connection to either a crime or a victim of crime, or the criminal themselves. And I really want to understand why. So I decided to have a chat with Wayne from Eerie, Edinburgh podcast and YouTube channel. As he admits to me in the interview you're about to hear, he just loves ghost stories. He really does. And Edinburgh is a city I know well and I'm fascinated with. My husband is from nearby over the 4th in Fife and has lived in Edinburgh as a student. It's a city with a dark history and its ghost stories reflect that, many centering around crime and criminals. And Wayne's brilliant podcast, Eerie Edinburgh, tells the less well-known ghost stories of the city and its surrounds. Always infused with history and a real sense of Scotland's majestic scenery and past, I cannot recommend enough that you give Eerie Edinburgh a listen or a watch on YouTube. But here's the interview. And apologies that I was full of cold and Wayne was recovering from one when we recorded this. Thank you so much, Wayne, for agreeing to join me today um, to talk about criminal ghosts and victims of crime who haunt places. But before we get on to that, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your wonderful podcast, Eerie Edinburgh? Thank you, Nat. Uh, thanks for that. It's 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 an honour to be asked on. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak to you about ghosts. Um, so Erie Edinburgh started uh, during lockdown, really. But it started when I was a kid. I, I've always been fascinated with ghost stories. Um, I could listen to people talk about ghosts for for days on end. It's one of these things that throughout life. I've all I've come to the conclusion that there's only a few things that genuinely interest me, and one of them is ghosts. Whenever somebody talks about ghosts, I'm all ears, and I, I, I'll just listen and listen, and I love it, and I love the story aspect of it. Like when Most Haunted and things like that were really popular, it wasn't really the investigation that I liked. I liked the history, and I liked the storytelling part of it, the introduction to them. Um, so always had a passion for it. My sister used to torment me with ghost stories and things like that, so it's always been a, a a strange obsession that I've had. Um, and during lockdown, I kind of read a lot more, started to read up a lot more on the, the stories from Edinburgh. And what I kept coming across was, all you hear about were the stories from the vaults and stories from Greyfriars. And having grown up in Edinburgh, I know that there are a hell of a lot more stories uh, to tell than that. So 
I genuinely was kind of a bit concerned that we're going to lose all of these amazing, wonderful stories from the city, and it's just going to be, it's it'll just become Greyfriars in the vaults. So I thought I was bored. I needed a wee bit of a hobby, like everybody. I didn't want to go to baking banana bread or anything like that. I, I had experience of running a website in the past. I, I quite like hill walking, so I used to run a wee hill walking website about 15 years ago. Um, so I thought I'll give that a bash and created the Erie Edinburgh website and started to write up some of the stories that I was familiar with. Um, and then I kind of th- I kind of thought there's more to it than this. And that's when I joined Twitter with the Erie Edinburgh uh, site and I discovered the Uncanny podcast and the Uncanny community who were just this bunch of people that talked about ghosts were really passionate about it, really inclusive and just kind of took me under their wings and it felt I hate to use the term safe space, but it felt like a, a safe space to talk about ghosts. Mm. And seeing seeing some of the the, the things that people were creating, uh, the podcasts and the stories, and in particular, there's a guy called John Tintalan who runs North Edinburgh Nightmares. So I, I came across his YouTube uh, site and he focused at that time more on the, the Edinburgh stories centred around Leith, which is where I live. And I thought he's a, he's a wonderful storyteller. And I just kind of thought, let's give it a wee crack on YouTube. Uh, so I started with a, a wee story about a murder. It's called a murder in Bible Land, which was about a murder that had happened in the Canongate area of uh, the Royal Mile, and the ghost of a young woman wearing a tartan dress was seen uh, quite regularly. It was just a short wee video. Um, it, uh, it ended up getting about five views after a week, which I was delighted with because I thought that I would be the only person that would watch it. Um, so encouraged by that, I then worked on another video called Haunting in Buckingham Terrace. And after about a week with that, it had about nine views. And then I went to sleep and woke up and it had a thousand views. And then it just skyrocketed. And I went from having a couple of subscribers, one of which was me, um, to having over a hundred. And it just kept building and building. And um, now it's about 9,000 subscribers. I've put about 35 videos out and it's had over 8 million impressions, which just completely blows my mind. That's amazing. It's such a great story. Um, there were so many things then that I wanted actually to to, to respond to. The, the love of ghosts completely can relate to that. I was the big sister terrifying my little brother <laughs> with ghost stories growing up. Um, and again, the Uncanny community, we wouldn't have Weird in the Wade if it wasn't for Uncanny and the Uncanny mm. community. So, yeah, I remember watching watching the uh, the the video event that you were at and talking about the haunted pound stretcher. So I, I remember seeing that. It was a really interesting story. Oh, so were you one of the the remote viewers? That, that actually that makes yeah. that's that's not the word, is it? Remote viewer. <laughs> that's something <laughs> they do in psychic research. You were one of the Zoom or the online viewers from for on can't speak today for UncannyCon. I was, yeah. Oh, fantastic! It was a great, it was a great show, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was really enjoyable. Really nice to see so many people just feeling like they could talk about their experiences like that. It was great. Thank you so much um, for telling everybody then about um, Erie Edinburgh. It's a fantastic podcast. Um, you don't just cover Edinburgh; you do cover wider Scotland as well. And I have a particular love of Edinburgh. My husband's from Fife. He lived in Edinburgh. Um, we spend a lot of time in Edinburgh. But one of the things that I've noticed about Erie Edinburgh, your your podcast, but also just the ghost stories in general um, in Scotland, 
is that many of them are centered around either crimes or criminals. And in fact, I think that goes across the board that there's loads of ghost stories that are about shocking crimes, the criminals that do those crimes, and also the victims of the crimes. Um, and I wondered if you'd come across any that really particularly stick out in your mind um, in in doing Erie Edinburgh that are ghost stories that kind of relate to criminals or victims of crime. Yeah, there's, like you say, you know, Edinburgh's got a very murky past. Uh, there's been a lot of intrigue, a lot of murder. Um, you know, if you think back to some of the historical figures throughout the, the time, probably a couple of names that stand out are Burke and Hare, the resurrectionists. Um, you know, we, we are synonymous with darkness and, mm. and um, things like that. So there are so many stories where, like you, like you say, there's the ghost is the victim, you know, they've been murdered or they were the, the murderer. Um, some of the ones that, that spring to mind, one of the, the first stories I covered was the White Lady of Kerstorfen. Um Kerstorfen is a uh, it was a separate village to the west of Edinburgh that was amalgamated into the city 150 years ago or something like that. It's kind of still got its own character to it. Um, and in in Kerstorfen is an area that there used to be a castle, Kerstorfen Castle. Kerstorfen Castle no longer stands, but there is a ducat or a dovecot that stands that was part of the castle. Um, and the castle was owned by a laird at, at the time of the, this happened, Laird Jamie Forrester, I believe his name was, uh, and he was a, a notorious womanizer um, and drinker, and he struck up a relationship with a woman called Christian Nimmo, who was already married, um, and they he carried out an illicit affair for for quite a while, and the, the place that they would meet would be the the Ducat, um, and Christian Nimmo, she was known as as having quite a fiery temper. Um, and on one occasion, because of the, the Laird's drinking habits, he, he turned up late and she was she was particularly angered by this. And he was quite belligerent with her by all accounts. Um, the, the story was relayed by the Christian's uh, servant that used to accompany her. Um, so they argued and she drew the Laird's sword and stabbed him through the heart with it. Um, she tried to escape, but uh, she, was, she was chased down by the Laird's sons who eventually caught up with her. She was tried at the uh, toll booth in Edinburgh and she was executed for, for murder, obviously. Um, but ever since then, her ghost has been seen quite on quite a regular occurrence up until maybe, I think I think there was a storm in around about 2000. There was a, a huge sycamore tree that used to stand next to the Ducat. Um, and the, the sightings of her started to wane after the storm when the, the sycamore tree was blown down. Um, it seems to have been linked to the ghost that was seen there, but she was often seen wandering around the Ducat as if waiting for him. But un interestingly, she was seen carrying this, the sword that she stabbed him to death with in her hand. So that's quite a, a well-known story. A, a couple of friends who live out in, in mm. Kerstorfen, um, none of them have seen, seen her directly themselves, but it was an accepted story that that was a haunted Ducat and other people had seen something or felt something in that area. That's your kind of classic white lady yeah. Um, ghost story, which I think everybody who likes a ghost story loves a, a white lady or lady in white. Yeah. Um, and another one that is possibly 
it's not really thought of as a, a ghost story, but it's a, a very famous story is Deacon Brody. Um, I don't know. Are you aware of Deacon Brody? Does that name ring I, a bell? I love this story. I love yeah. Deacon Brody for a couple of reasons. Um, have you been to the Writers Museum in um, Edinburgh? I have. I love that building. It's great. Yeah. So I, I, I really love um, Robert Louis Stevenson and he owned Deacon Brody's cabinet, one of the cabinets he'd made, and you can see it in the uh, museum. So it's one of the reasons I love going there. So yes, tell us about Deacon Brody. So for people who don't know, <clears throat> Deacon Brody, the, the paradox of Brody's life inspired Stevenson to write the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. Um, Brody by day was a respected figure. He was a locksmith and also head of the town council. Um, but by night, he was a thief. Um, he had a he was another man who had a drinking habit. He had a, a fair few mistresses, by all accounts. So he needed the money to accommodate that lifestyle. Um, being a locksmith, when he was asked to create a lock, if it was somebody who was quite well off, he'd make a, a copy of, of the, the key. Um, and after a few weeks, once he felt suspicion wouldn't have turned on him as being a locksmith and creating the, the keys for it, he and a, a group of people would, would break in and rob the houses. He he was quite a successful guy. He got away with this for quite a while. And the, the reason he was caught was when he'd they planned a raid on the excise office in a place called Chessel's Court, which is just off the Royal Mile. Chessel's Court, interestingly enough, is another haunted location on the Royal Mile. Uh, that's haunted by a lady in black. Um, she's often heard there's one property where uh, I believe try to refresh my memory it's kind of 18th century there was a woman who lived on her own and she would hear somebody come up to her door and knock on her door what we'd call an edinburgh chap door run but every time she opened the door there was nobody there mm-hmm. and she would have sight down the stairs and at night it would happen and there would be nobody there there'd be no footsteps of people running away um and her brother ended up coming to stay and if memory serves he saw the lady in black standing at the side of his his room uh, again, John Tatalan from North Edinburgh Nightmares. He's had some experiences himself there. Um, so, yeah, that's that's another haunted area. But uh, back to Deacon Brodie. They'd broken into the excise office, but one of the, the staff had returned. This was about 8 o'clock at night, and they returned and kind of interrupted them. So he had to flee. Um, he was he was recognised, so he had to leave Edinburgh. He tried all sorts to get away. He, he escaped from Leith and fled to Amsterdam to avoid capture. He bribed the ship's captain to divert the ship to a different location where he wouldn't be picked up. He was eventually caught, and he was another one who was hung. I think he was hung in front of about 40,000 people. It's quite a hell of a crowd, considering wow. Edinburgh, I think. It was about 60,000 people at that time. I mean, yeah, that's um, nearly everyone, isn't it, turned out? <laughs> Yeah, well, if you think about Edinburgh in the olden days, the old town before the new town was the the Royal Mile. That was what Edinburgh consisted of. Mm. So it's sixty thousand people living in uh, it's like a a square mile, yeah. not a large area at all. That's why we have the the tenements, uh, yeah. the world's first sky, skyscrapers. Um, but yeah, he he to the point that he died. He he was a chancer. He tried his best to get away with it. He tried to bribe. Um, or I think he did bribe the hangman to ignore a steel collar that he'd constructed mm-hmm. and he'd insert a silver pipe to help um, support his neck so that his neck couldn't break on the fall. Apparently it didn't work or it it may have worked depending on the story that you believe. Yeah. Some people people think he got away with it um, and escaped but the, he's apparently buried um, near Bristol Square. There's an old church with a cemetery there. So 
after his death, um, his ghost was seen apparently completely outraged and said to roam up and down the Royal Mile, holding a lantern with visible sores around his neck uh, from the like rope marks from the yeah. burn marks from the rope that was used to hang him. Um, it's, that's not a famous story. The story that's more associated with him is just his life and the Jekyll and Hyde aspect to him. But there are reported hauntings of, of um, Deacon Brodie marching up and down the Royal Mile, very angry at the fate yeah. that he, he, he succumbed to. Yeah. It's actually, and what's really interesting, that in a way links to um, the story that we told in the last uh, Weird in the Wade episode about uh, Black Tom in Bedford. That one of the reasons he's seen as a as a ghost is that he feels he shouldn't have been hanged. He he, mm. you know, um, the story goes that he was given um, a, a petition, or that the judge should have been given a petition saying that you know people of Bedford did not want to see him hanged, um, but he was hanged anyway. And it's partly that's why he can't rest. And and I think that leads on to that question that I wondered if you had an opinion of, um, Wayne, which is why do you think so many ghost stories centre around crimes or or criminals? Um, in the case of, say, Deacon Brodie or, or Black Tom, it's that idea that they feel that they were treated unjustly in some way and, and shouldn't have been hanged, but it's far more complex than that, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a good question. I think what you've, what you've said there, that it's unfinished business is, is possibly an explanation mm -hmm. for it. You know, if, if you believe in, that a ghost is a spirit of a deceased person that, ha that can't find rest, then unjust actions are going to make that, you know, you're, what am I trying to say here? What am I trying to say here now? <laughs> I think I think I know what you're trying to say. That, like you say, the idea if if you subscribe to the sort of Christian or, in fact, quite a lot of religions' beliefs that there is a life after death, mm. and that we should move on to somewhere else, whether that's a, a type of heaven or a type of hell or a reincarnation, but that there is something else that actually somehow that cycle gets broken. And you can't move on to whatever's next because you feel like you said there's unfinished business. That also explains, even if you don't necessarily believe in ghosts, I'm guessing that also though explains why the people who tell the stories might believe this because they believe in that idea of heaven and hell or something after death. And so believe that there could be times when that natural cycle gets disrupted in some way. You said it far better than I could say it. So yes. <laughs> How you've described it is exactly what's in my head. I just can't get the words to, to work. Um, th there is a story, there's a, a chap that's known now as Johnny Onearm, who um, was a, a, a guy called John Cheesley in life. He was a 17th century businessman. Um, he was married. He Another drunk who mistreated his wife. She managed to successfully sue him for divorce. Uh, he he lost the case despite his protestations and the judge completely sided with his wife and awarded her maintenance that in, in today's money would be about £80,000 per year. So he was irate because of this. You know, he was in, the, in court, he was threatening the judge. Um, you know, this isn't the, the last you'll see of me kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it wasn't. And the, the judge kind of tried to put what had happened out of his mind. He'd gone to a service, I think it was in St Giles on, on the Royal Mile, had left, um, but he'd left with a couple of friends and he felt like he was being followed. 
And it turns out he was being followed and, and Cheesley waited until the judge had gone down one of the, the closest and was on his own before he shot him and murdered him. He felt so just in his actions because he felt so, he'd been so wronged by the judge's decision that he didn't try and flee. He just stayed there and waited for the police to come and take him. Um, he was he was executed. The reason he's now called One, Johnny One Arm is because they cut off the hand that he used to pull the trigger and they hung it around his neck as he was being executed. And they also hung the pistol around his neck that he'd used to shoot the judge. Um, and he's he's another one who's seen in the area of the, the assassination was that took place, but he's also seen where he used to live, which is an area of, of Edinburgh to the again to the west, more to the southwest, called Dalry, which is where he used to live. And again, he's another angry ghost that's unhappy. Um, seems like he's got unfinished business, as, as you said. Um, but again, it leads into feeds off from from what you said that there's this unjustness. You know, he he was he felt unjust in, in life, what had happened to him, and now he's he carries that on into death. Yeah. That's such a fascinating story and has links to the story that I'm telling in this episode in a way about this idea of being mutilated as well as executed in the past. And um, the the character that we're I'm going to look at, which is Thomas Dunn, it wasn't enough. He was seen as so evil. It wasn't enough to just execute him. He He also was then sort of chopped up and bits of him were sent to different parts of Bedfordshire. And again, it's kind of, that seems to be one of the reasons why people think he cannot rest because it it wasn't just a normal execution. He was actually sort of, you know, defiled um, in a way that was seen to be extreme, if you see what I mean. Although he was an extremely extreme criminal as well. Wayne, that has just been fantastic listening to those stories. I wish we had more time. So I may, if if you would be up for it, invite you to come back at, on a on another episode so we can have a talk about maybe a different type of, of ghost story if you would be um, interested in doing that. I would love to. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. Again, I would like to thank Wayne from Erie, Edinburgh for joining me today to talk about ghosts with a connection to crime. You can find Eerie Edinburgh on YouTube and other podcasting sites. I've put links in the show description and the blog where there's a transcript and notes for this episode, including the discussion with Wayne. I think what this episode has highlighted for me is that sometimes crimes are so shocking and spread so much fear in the communities where they happen that ghost stories emerge as a way of preserving that fear. Or the fear itself transforms with time into something different, like with the murder bridge. Other times, the deeds of the criminal are just so shocking, and the manner of their deaths and executions so equally ghoulish and this leads to their memory living on far longer than accurate information does about their crimes. They become the bogeymen to scare children with. Yet another example for why you should not commit crime, you'll end up like Thomas Dunn, hacked to pieces and unable to even descend to hell, doomed to wander with a twisted neck and purple face for eternity, tormented and broken. 
And unfinished business is another reason for hauntings, where victims of crimes and criminals feel that there is more they needed to do in life, so they cannot rest or move on either. In the next episode, we'll look at these phenomena in more detail, where a victim of crime is said to haunt Green Park in London. He cannot move on from the sorrow caused him by the theft of his beloved violin. We'll also look at where a real-life crime becomes so notorious, all details of it are swollen out of proportion over time, until any strange phenomena is blamed on it. We'll be exploring the body snatchers of Biggleswade, and yes, returning to the tunnels. This next episode should be out within three weeks, so earlier than usual, because at the end of March, or right at the beginning of April, the first Weird Wonders episode is due out. More about that next time. Thank you so much for listening today. I appreciate your company so much. Remember, if you want to get in touch with me, then you can email weirdinthewade at gmail.com. Social media links are in the show description. Weird in the Wade is researched, written, presented and edited by me, Matt Doig. The music is by Tess Savagir. All additional music and sound effects by Epidemic Sound.